grace. It, 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 it encompasses so much that we cannot describe it, we cannot define it, we can't fill its depths of definition with our paltry, measly words. But this morning we're going to try, we're singing about it, we're going to study about it and see what God's word has to say about it. President Harry Truman, I wasn't alive yet, some of y'all were, he introduced what was called the Truman Doctrine on March 12, 1947. Now, it went into effect about a year later. Uh, he, they, they pushed it again, and, and it, went into an, it went into effect officially. But the Truman Doctrine was a, a reaction to the spread of communism after World War II when the Soviet Union uh, took Eastern Europe, East Germany, East Berlin, and uh, uh, the the U.S. realized, okay, we've got to have some sort of plan here. So they developed the Truman Doctrine, but it actually began uh, with some civil wars in Greece and Turkey. That's where it started. So 1947, Truman comes up with this idea. In 48, it's basically codified, uh, and it has been our standard foreign policy ever since. It's been expanded and broadened to not just necessarily be a fight against communism, but generally uh, anywhere it, it appears that freedom is under attack. Uh, mostly it usually means money. It means support for whoever's fighting communism, though occasionally, like in Vietnam and Korea, it actually meant uh, boots on the ground. But the, the, the reaction, and I, I'm not here to debate foreign policy or uh, decisions of past presidents, regardless of, of the, res uh, the end result, uh, or the, not the end result, the uh, uh, consecutive results, the end result is that now we as the U.S. live under the Truman Doctrine. It's still, whether it's written or not, it's still part of how we govern. It's a mission-altering policy, the Truman Doctrine is. It's a, 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 a future-altering policy. It now informs every other decision that is made bay, uh, toward foreign policy. Acts 15, where we are this morning, is a mission-altering policy. It, it's a response to a situation the church made a decision based on that situation, and it's not just a, a little minor internal squabble or something like that. This was a huge, huge deal. This decision that we're going to talk about in Acts 15 this morning affects the entire outreach mechanism and engine of the church up until today. Not just little old little flame to put out over here, a little fire to put out there, but this was a mission-altering policy because what it came to mean, though if you read it, you might miss this. If you go through it too quickly, you could miss it. What it came to mean for the policy of the, uh, uh, the church, with the mission policy of the church, is that salvation is a universal offer that is received not by works, but by grace alone. Paul is going to write about this over and over in his letters. Uh, it's going to be the standard way of seeing salvation. 
it's the, it's the codified way because there was a split here. There was a, one group that said salvation is this way, and there's another group that says salvation is this way. And we're also going to see as we move through it that the church went to Scripture to find the answer. But this dispute is going on. It's, about, it's based on the, the things that are going on in Antioch. It's uh, based on the, the results of Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey where they went up through the churches of Ephesus and Galatia and other places uh, that we talked about in November was the last time we were in Acts. But read with me Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 35. It's a long passage of Scripture that discusses this. Uh, it was too much to put on the screen, so the verse you're going to see on the screen is kind of the, the crux of the passage, Acts 15, 11. 15, 1, some men came down from Judea, down meaning from up on the hill in Jerusalem to where everything else in the world was as far as they saw it, came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this issue. When they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the believers, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders gathered to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers and sisters, you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now then, why are you testing God? By putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear. On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. The whole assembly became silent. And listened to Barnabas and Paul describe all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they stopped speaking, James responded. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. Simeon... Peter, has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name. And the words of the prophets agree with this, as it is written, After these things I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again, so the rest of humanity may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name declares the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God, but instead we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from blood. For since ancient times, Moses has had those who proclaim him in every city, and every Sabbath day he is read aloud in the synagogues. Then the apostles and the elders of the whole church decided to select men who were among them and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, both leading men among the brothers. They wrote, From the apostles and the elders, your brothers, 
to the brothers and sisters among the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some without our authorization went out from us and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts, we have unanimously decided to select men and send them to you along with our dearly loved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who will personally report the same things by word of mouth. For it was the Holy Spirit's decision, and ours, not to place further burdens on you beyond these requirements, that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. You will do well if you keep yourselves from these things. Farewell. So they were sent off and went down to Antioch, and after gathering the assembly, they delivered the letter. When they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Both Judas and Silas, who are also prophets themselves, encouraged the brothers and sisters and strengthened them with a long message. After spending some time there, they were sent back in peace by the brothers and sisters to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas, along with many others, remained in Antioch, teaching and proclaiming the word of the Lord. So as I said, this was no minor event or unnecessary internal squabble. This wasn't something that the church in Jerusalem would say, oh, well, y'all just figure it out, or, or Paul and Barnabas would say, eh, it's just this or that. This was huge. This meeting, this declaration, this, this James doctrine, if we wanted to call it that, set a doctrinal standard, and it set a missiological standard. It set a doctrinal standard in saying how we understood or how they understood salvation to occur. Because they'd seen it, because Jesus had told them. I mean, it wasn't like they were pulling something out of the air. They knew how salvation happened. So it was setting a doctrinal standard, this is what we will do. But it will also set a missiological standard. It will inform how the lost, particularly Gentiles, are reached for the rest of time. We are reached with the gospel. We were reached with the gospel the way we were and could respond in the way we did because of this little council. You think about it that way, this is a doctrine that has stood for 2,000 years and the result of which is your salvation and my salvation. So that's what we see here in this passage. We're going to break it up into about five or six Uh, separate units. The first unit we see is verses 1 through 5 where we see the idea of, the the false idea, the heretical idea of a gospel of works. Verses 1 through 5 present that. It's some men came down from Judah. They were throwing the name of James around probably. Hey, we're from the big church in Jerusalem. This is how it's supposed to be. And you have to do certain things certain Jewish things, really, you have to become a Jew and submit to Jewish law in order to be saved. It says it in verse 1, says it in verse 5. He, he, uh, uh, Luke sandwiches the uh, little descriptor here by their statement or with their statement. This is heretical. Now, I don't use that term lightly. Heresy is a major, major accusation. To say anyone is a heretic is to say that they are outside of the faith, they are teaching against Jesus. But any time anyone tells you in order to be saved, you have to have Jesus and it's a heresy. And this is Jesus and theology. 
This is a group saying you have to have Jesus and circumcision. Jesus and dietary restrictions. Jesus and the temple. Jesus and something else. Jesus and theology is a heretical theology and leads people straight to hell. That's just the result of it. That is what we are talking about here in this Jerusalem council, what becomes the James Doctrine. Why? Naturally, we, we, I wanted to know, or think about at least, why were they saying these things? Why were the men from Judea, the men who were throwing James's name around uh, as, a, as a, an authority, uh, someone who sent them, why were they concerned about this? Why did they go all the way from Jerusalem to Antioch to tell them you're getting saved wrong? Well, it could just be that they felt that theology was that important, that, that their view of it was that important. Notice that these are Pharisees. These are, these are what Paul was. These are Pharisees who have gotten saved, but they are struggling to give up their Pharisaic, uh, Pharisaical background. They just can't let go of the rules. The rules that say in order to be a follower of God, you have to do it this way. They cannot let go of those. And it could be purely theological. They just felt it was that important. But we, we have a pretty good idea, given the Jewishness of those who were doing uh, saying these things, given the enmity between Jews and Gentiles for a long time, that there were other issues at stake here. Uh, somewhere in there, there was some racism. Well, you know those, those, uh, those what are they, Greeks up there? Who knows what? Up in Cilicia and, and Syria. Oh, we, we already had to in the, get the Samaritans in here, but now we got to get Gentiles too? <sighs> no, not letting them in my church. Some elitism. We know we're better than them. And in order for them to even be close to being as good as us, they really need to do these things that we do. Or just pure traditionalism. That is not the way we've always done it. We've always, even when we accepted Jesus, we were still Jews. That's the way we do it in church. We're going to do it this way. We've got to do it this way. Some part of all of that depending on the person doing the talking, more of one than the other. But regardless, there was no love, no grace in what they were teaching. So they went all the way from Jerusalem to Antioch to teach them, to tell them. Well, Paul and Barnabas know, all right, this is wrong. And it says they uh, fiercely, seriously argued and debated and it was stirred up the church enough that Paul and Barnabas were appointed by the church in Antioch. Y'all need to go to Jerusalem and figure this out. Go talk to James. If he sent these people, we need to know why. Because this is not the gospel that you preached, Paul and Barnabas. This is not the gospel that... And remember, these are Jews in Antioch that started the church in Antioch that were sent, uh, that were scattered by the uh, persecution that started with Stephen. Remember, that's how they got there. They went through Samaria and Phoenicia and, and made converts on their way to planting that church in Antioch. 
So they send Paul and Barnabas, and Paul and Barnabas turn around, and all right, we'll go. And as they move down, they move south from Antioch down to Jerusalem. They pass through Phoenicia and Samaria, and they meet with the churches who are primarily Jewish churches, but certainly many Gentiles as well. And they check in on them. How are y'all doing? How are things going? Look at all the Gentiles that are coming to Jesus. And these churches rejoice in this Gentile salvation. So this idea was not a universally held belief. It was a few people stirring up. It was a small group stirring a pot. They get there. They get to Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas do, and they gather the, pot, the apostles, the elders. And in verses 6 through 11, we see an apostle's response. Peter stands up. Now, we've talked about a few times as we've worked through Acts how the leadership transitioned from the apostles primarily to elders. Uh, James, the brother of John, is dead. He was the first pastor of the church, the first elder of the church in Jerusalem. He has been beheaded. Um, he, he's gone. We, we don't know where the rest of the uh, 12 disciples are, very likely. Many of them have scattered for whatever reason, either on mission, missionary journeys or something like that. But the leadership has shifted. As a matter of fact, Peter very likely had to come back from a mission trip. Last time we saw him, he was going to witness to the Jews. He was going on a mission trip to share the gospel with the Jews. The, the, the Gentiles were opened because of Peter. The, the mission to the Gentiles were opened because of Peter. At least it was uh, uh, expressed to Peter on the roof when he saw the, the, the food coming down. But he's been on a mission trip, so he's come back now to address this issue. And here we have his response. It's his last sermon, and it's his last mention in Acts. Peter will now fall by the wayside. We'll have his letters later on, but as far as a, a, an actor in Acts, he's gone. And he gets up and he shares the story of Cornelius. It's the third time in Acts that the story of Cornelius has been shared. It's an important story when Jesus says, write this story down three times. It's also an important story, or, or rather it's a, an indication of the density of the heads of those who were hearing this story. Peter's saying, Did, do you not remember? Now, if anybody's got the market cornered on head density, it's Peter, isn't it? I mean, if we look back at his story, we look back at who he was, he understands being hard-headed and stubborn and speaking before you think and, and those sorts of things. So Peter, he gets it, and yet he shares this story now for the third time. You know, you remember, I told you, you're aware that God made me a choice. I'm in verse 7, made a choice among us. He chose me. That the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe for the first time. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. Now, it's interesting. If you go back to that story of Cornelius, the Holy Spirit acted on those people without any outward action on their part. You don't see them say, yes, I believe. You don't say, hear them say, yes, I want to be baptized. They didn't walk an aisle. They didn't come down front. 
Peter preached the message of the gospel. In their hearts, they believed, and suddenly the Holy Spirit came on them, and things happened that everybody saw that indicated to them, clearly the Holy Spirit is on them. And we've talked about the, the Holy Spirit coming on uh, saved people. Sometimes it happens visibly in Acts. Sometimes it doesn't happen visibly in Acts. Every time it happens visibly, it's a form of confirmation that God is doing something among a new group of people. When it doesn't happen, doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It just means that there was no necessary reason for a visible confirmation. We know that when you get saved, you get the Holy Spirit. They knew when you got saved, you got the Holy Spirit. So this was uh, a, a visible confirmation of something brand new happening, but it happened without them doing anything. Peter's making a point here. You're saying in order to be saved, you've got to not just believe, accept Christ, whatever. You've got to go through all of these rituals, including circumcision, in order to be saved. Do you not remember what happened to the family of Cornelius? We're standing in the room, they're over here, I'm over, uh, they're over there, I'm over here, I preach the gospel, I get to the, do you want to believe? And before they can say anything, vroom, the Holy Spirit comes, they start speaking in tongues. I know for a fact, they're saved. You don't start doing that without the Holy Spirit, and you don't get the Holy Spirit without salvation through Jesus Christ. They didn't do anything. They didn't even nod, maybe Peter's thinking. And they got saved. How can you say you have to do anything to be saved. The Holy Spirit acted without any action on their part. And, and Peter lays it on them. Now remember, though leadership has been in transition in the church, and the, the apostles are fading, and the elders are rising just by nature, just because that's the way it needed to be, new generations come along, Peter still carries a lot of clout. He's still the one who has been with, was with Jesus. He's still the one that was in the courtyard when he was beaten and tried, tried, and probably watched from a distance as he was crucified. James, this is Jesus' brother, the James that we're going to talk about, but he wasn't an apostle. This isn't one of the apostles, James. This is one that thought his brother was crazy until after the fact and became the pastor of the church. So Peter lays it on him. He says, why are you testing God? How, how can you do this? Why are you testing God? This is an echo of, of two other questions earlier through Acts. One was when Gamaliel uh, had Peter and John in front of him, in front of the Sanhedrin, and he told the rest of the Sanhedrin, y'all, if this is of God, we can't stop it. If it's not of God, it won't go anywhere. The implication there, you best not test God on this. Because if we're found in the wrong, we will be found fighting against the Lord. And do we want that? The answer is no. Well, they didn't pay too much heed to him. Then later on, Ananias and Sapphira show up, and they present their offering that's a partial offering, and, and it wasn't that they didn't give enough money. It was that they lied about what they were given. Yeah, we sold the field for $100,000. Here's the $100,000. It's everything we got for the field. And they go, well, it turns out you sold it for two hundred. dollars Why are you lying? It's your money to do with what you want. Why, Peter asks him, Ananias, do you test God? Boom, Ananias drops dead. 
Sapphira comes in. Hey, where's your husband? Oh, he's dead. You too. Boom, she drops dead. I mean, they, maybe it's a little nicer than that. But that, that's condensed version, right? Cliff's notes. Um, and so he says the same thing. Now, let's, let's assume for just a second that the church in Jerusalem responded in the same way. Well, this is, we're not testing God. This is the way it's supposed to be. I wonder, I just wonder if, boom, the elders would have dropped dead. I don't know. Fun to think about. But regardless, Peter is telling them, you're testing God. In the same way that Gamaliel said don't do it, the same way I responded to Ananias and Sapphira that she shouldn't do it, you should not put God to the test by putting this yoke on their neck. Now, we know that a yoke generally, is two animals pulling the same thing. It's to keep those two animals, oxen usually, uh, to, to make sure they are pulling uh, together on whatever they're dragging. And you don't want a big ox and a little ox because that, they're going to pull one way or the other. You want them to match equally yoked. We, we get that, uh, that image from Paul later on. This yoke, though, does not seem to be that sort of yoke. This is more the kind of yoke that you would put around the neck of an animal to restrict that animal. Stop that animal from going places or doing things. Maybe uh, I've, I've been privileged, is that the word, to witness a number of different veterinary activities with full-grown cows. I won't describe them to you. Um, ain't nothing nice about them. But uh, they put them in this little chute and the gate closes around their neck. And, and depending on what they're checking, like if they're uh, checking the calves inside the cow, uh, it closes all around them, and, and sometimes it tilts them. And, I mean, it's just interesting stuff. But that's a yoke. That's the frame around the neck to keep that cow from moving. And that's what Paul or Peter says, you're doing to these people. If you put this sort of yoke, you are keeping them from moving. Moving where? Moving to what? Moving to salvation. You are putting a yoke that will send these people to hell. And you're testing God in the process. That's the apostles' response. Then we get a missionary's testimony, verses 12 through, well, it's just verse 12. Um, Barnabas and Paul are important here. But they are really minor actors uh, in this discussion. Here we have them, it just says in verse 12, the whole assembly became silent. You can tell they're thinking, hmm. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul describe all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. They, they added evidence to this trial, this discussion, but they did not carry the weight of Peter and James. Barnabas and Paul didn't. So Luke understands that. He knows the leadership dynamics that are going on. Doesn't even bother giving us anything that they say. He just says they told them things that had happened. Here's, you know, Peter says we're going to the Gentiles. Let me tell you what we saw among the Gentiles. And it's interesting to see here, Paul show this willingness to let others do the heavy lifting when necessary. Paul willing to step back and say, you know what? This is one of those instances when I just need to be quiet and let Peter and James do this and trust that the Holy Spirit will lead them in the right direction. But that missionary's testimony bolstered what Peter has already said about Cornelius and about the mission to the Gentiles. And then James stands up. And I imagine after they're silent after Peter, there's probably murmuring after Barnabas and Paul. Well, oh, well, that's a pretty interesting story, but does that tell you what? I mean, really, though, 
they're, they're still Gentiles. Is that what we want in the church? And they don't look like that. I don't think they're going to worship like that. And then James stands up. And you can just kind of, I imagine the entire group just cuts off. Shh. James is going to talk. He carried that kind of clout. He carried that kind of weight. He says more here than anybody else. And much of what he says ends up in the letter. So clearly, James is the authority figure here. And what do we see? We see that all the discussion fades in the presence of a biblical sermon. We see here a pastor's message. Verses 13 to 21. James doesn't just get up and say, this is what I think. James gets up and says... This is what the Bible says. Thus says the Lord. We we could preach a sermon on that. We could stop there today and, and, and just hang out there for 30 more minutes and say, this is where we go down on. This is what we drill down on. This is what we anchor to. It does not matter our opinions. It does not matter our politics. It doesn't matter our feelings. It doesn't matter our emotions. It doesn't matter what our friends say or our family says. It doesn't matter what makes us feel good or what makes us feel bad. It always goes back to what does Scripture say? James understood that. He understood that in his role as pastor, as elder of the church, and that's where he goes. He says, brothers and sisters, verse 13, listen to me. Simeon has, told, has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people of his name. Already he has jumped into scandalous waters. He, he, he uses the word people, but it's a word, a Greek word that is particularly used for the people of God. It would be laos. We'd say Laos, it's a country, but it, it, that's not what it is. It's Laos. It's, it, it is a word used in, of Israel in the Old Testament. And now James has the audacity to use this word that every Jew in that room knew meant something particular and peculiar about the Jewish people. He uses that word to describe Gentiles already. There's some of them going, I don't think so. And he's just started the sermon. But this throws us back to what Jesus said in John 10, 16 about sheep, not of this fold. Mormons have misused that, uh, that verse. Joseph Smith used it to talk about Jesus showing up in the Americas to sh- spread uh, Christianity to uh, Native Americans. That's not what that verse is talking about. What that verse is talking about is right here, right now in Acts. This is the fulfillment of sheep not of this fold coming into the fold. So James said, he, he told us he was going to pull a, a, a gen, out of the Gentiles a, a people for his name. The prophets told us, the prophets agree, he says. That phrase, prophets agree, that agreement, it's, it's a really great word. It, it says they sang the same song, or actually more, uh, even more accurately, they matched pitch. Songs are beautiful when the harmonies and, and the pitches match, right? And then they're kind of eh, eh, when they don't. And we know it. Even if we're not great musicians ourselves, we hear things. We go, ooh, that did, eh. 
what he's saying is the prophets all sang the same song. They matched, pitched when it came to what Jesus was going to do through the Gentiles. I mean, you, you, you almost get a vision, I do, of, of worship. Worshiping God because of the work among the Gentiles. And then he quotes in verses 16 and 17, primarily from the prophet Amos, uh, a book that we studied on Wednesday nights here not too long ago. And we talked about this passage. After these things, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins, set it up again, so the rest of humanity may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name declares the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. See, the Gentiles will come under David's tent. The Gentiles will come under the Messiah's tent. David ain't coming back, but one from the line of David will. One who is of the seed of David, the promised eternal king in the line of David that even goes back further than that to Abraham. I promise you, Abraham, that from your seed, all nations, all ethne, all Gentiles and Jews will be blessed through you. And as they are brought under Messiah's tent, as they come under this rebuilt David's tent, the Gentiles become God's laos. Not through the law, but through the Messiah. The Gentiles become God's people because of their trust in Jesus Christ. Because of their belief in Him. See, what... The Jews wanted what those who went up from Judea to Antioch to stir up issues. What they wanted was, or how they envisioned it, or how I envision it. They had an okay car. It got them around. It did what they needed it to. It got them from point A to point B. Wasn't great, wasn't beautiful, but it was, it was efficient. It, it did the job. And so, now it, it didn't have air conditioning, it didn't have, uh, nowadays it's, it's got to have Bluetooth, right, to play our music, it doesn't matter about CD play, it didn't have, it didn't have any of that, it, 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 the, the windows you had to crank them down, kind of like my pickup, you know, nothing electric, it just, it just served the purpose. And what they wanted to do, oh we're adding the Gentiles, okay, fine, we'll put an 8 track player in it. No problem, but it's got to wire, be wired up just right. It's got to work perfectly. We don't use 8-tracks anymore. I don't care. That's what I like was 8-tracks. So if you want to trick it out, we'll put an 8-track player in it. That was their idea. Just add on a little bit to what was already done. God was not rebuilding a jalopy with old parts. God was building a new modern wonder with a new people of God grafted in something brand new. It wasn't the Jews with these added. It was everything brand new. It was a new group, a new people, something to worship him and follow him that had never been seen on the earth before. That's the work that God was doing. That's what they were dealing with, and that's what James understood. And I, I firmly believe when he got done with his sermon, you could hear jaws just hitting the floor. One, because some of them still didn't want to believe it. But two, because they 
just couldn't imagine the awesomeness of God that saw in Amos, or through Amos, what he was going to do with the Messiah. Verses 22 through 29 give us a missionary concern. The, the letter that was sent out, uh, they write this letter, take it to them. Uh, we're going to send good men along with you, Barnabas and uh, Bar, uh, Judas and Silas. Uh, we're going to send them out with you. Go and encourage the, the, the believers in Antioch, the, the, uh, the, the, the Gentile believers in Antioch. But this letter was a missionary concern. We've heard the missionaries report. Now this is a missionary concern. How are we going to soothe hurt feelings up there so that they know you are part of God's chosen people. You are a part of the church, no problem, but also affect missionary endeavors down the road. There were some restrictions, but it, these were restrictions based on a, mission, a missionary concern. They were restrictions that served cross-cultural purposes that led to harmony. Look, Gentiles, y'all are coming from a completely different uh, life system than the Jews. Here are some things in order to keep harmony in the church that you need to do. Because you're going to come into contact with some people that believe differently than you. Compromise. Do these things so that there's no offense anywhere around. These aren't hard things. Except for... I can't find him. Except for Justin. I'm going to pick on Justin a little bit. It had been hard for Justin not to eat meat with the blood in it. Y'all don't know that I like my steaks medium. I like them pink. Justin likes his steaks squealing. Um, that would have been difficult for you, Justin. But I believe that Justin, just like these other Gentiles, would have said, you know what? If it keeps harmony in the church, I'm willing to give that up. And that's what they were going to do. But both sides in this conversation, this letter shows that both sides discussed and compromised for the sake of spreading the gospel. Not everybody went away happy. Paul is going to later on write some letters to the Corinthians that say, you don't have to do any sort of restrictions, Gentiles. You don't have to give up meat sacrificed to idols. You don't have to do any of those things unless it causes your brother to stumble which is the spirit of this same letter. Give up these things, Gentiles, so that you don't cause your Jewish brothers to stumble. It's not a stumbling block for you not to eat this in these certain ways. It's not a stumbling block for you to give up sexual immorality coming from pagan worship where that was part of uh, their uh, worship process. So they discuss, they compromise, they create this missionary concern, but notice salvation by grace cannot be compromised. There was no compromise on following the law in order to be saved. Compromises on worship, compromises on table fellowship, compromises on getting along as a church. Yes, compromises on the, uh, the, the foundational doctrine of salvation by grace alone through faith. No, that cannot be compromised on. And then because of this missionary concern, because of this letter that goes out, worship, fellowship, and missions are spared and flourish by what? By mutual submission. The Jews had to give up on, they need to follow the law. The Gentiles had to give up on, 
things that we've done all of our lives, but they offend our brothers. They cause our brothers to stumble. We will come together, mutually giving up some things, so we can worship together as a family, in love, and in unity. And then we see, verses 30 through 35, that it was a resolution of joy. As, they, as, the, as Luke describes it, as they went back through Phoenicia and uh, Samaria and uh, back to Antioch, all who heard the letter, had the letter read to them, rejoiced. They rejoiced in the fact that the church came together in unity and came up with a plan, came up with an answer, but they came up with a doctrine, a solid doctrine, didn't come up with the doctrine. They believed what Jesus had already said and showed that the gospel of salvation by grace alone is for all. Nobody's excluded. Nobody's outside of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who will call on his name for salvation. No one is outside of his reach. The gospel should always bring encouragement and peace to the local church. Look at what it says. They uh, went out and uh, sent off, went down to Antioch. Uh, when they heard it, verse 31, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas were prophets themselves. They encouraged the brothers and sisters, and strengthened them, and probably the most important part of this passage, with a long message. I'm kidding, that's not the most important part of it. But notice it says that. Strengthened them with a long message, and after spending time there, they were sent back in peace. Oh Lord Jesus, for peace in our churches. For unity in our churches. For a joy and an encouragement around the gospel in our churches. We see a lesson for the church. Christian fellowship means showing grace. One theologian put it this way. He said, we are hard on the gospel and soft on love. We do not compromise the gospel. But everywhere we can compromise in love, we will. We are hard on the gospel and soft on love. Another one put it this way. A pillar, he meant actually a pillar of iron on essentials and a reed on non-essentials. What is our focus, church? Our focus is the gospel. Our focus is what scripture says about the gospel. That is our focus. Everything else, we come together in unity. That's the lesson for the church this morning. The lesson for the lost, though, don't lose sight of the title. Don't lose sight of our main idea. Salvation is a universal offer that is received not by works, but by grace alone. The message, the lesson for the lost is you don't have to and you can't earn your salvation. Can't happen. Grace alone. All of this 35 verses to say grace alone. This morning, you can experience salvation through grace alone. You, you can't earn it. You can't be good enough for it. You can't clean yourself up enough to come and, okay, now Jesus will save me because I fixed some things. No, come to him this morning by grace alone. And we would love for you to come forward and share your decision with us and, and let us pray with you. But you know the prayer doesn't save you and me praying with you or Tom praying with you or Jordan praying with you. Or any, that doesn't save you. And walking down to the front doesn't save you. And being baptized doesn't save you. And we're going to baptize a bunch of people here in the next few weeks. I've forgotten how many it is. Six? 
people we're going to baptize in the next couple of weeks. They've been saved a long time, long before they get dumped. Grace alone saves you. Admit that you're a sinner this morning. Repent of those sins. No, that's not a work. It's a recognition. And ask God to forgive you. And that goes on in here. Speak it, sure. That solidifies it for us. That puts into words what's going on on the inside. But it's in here. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe the message of the gospel that Jesus is enough. The perfect son of God who died for your sins is enough to save you. And then choose to follow Jesus by giving your life to him. Turn it around. Give it. I will follow you. Grace. Grace. God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. That is what we need. That's what you need this morning. That's what you need if you're lost and you've never given your heart to Jesus. That's what you need as a believer today. Continue your process of sanctification. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that grace, that grace that saves, the grace that cleanses, the grace that makes a difference. Lord, we pray for the lost that they will respond to that free gift of grace and not depend on themselves, not depend on their own actions or works, but they will trust grace and experience salvation through faith. And Lord, we as a church, we would fellowship because of grace. We will be hard on the gospel, Lord. We will, it, we will not bend when it comes to salva- salvation by grace, through faith alone in Jesus Christ our Lord. That will never change. But Lord, those things that are non-essential, may we be loving and caring. Show deference for the sake of unity, for the sake of love, and for the sake of the gospel. Lord, move in this place, in this time of response this morning, as we seek you, as we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So how do you need to respond this morning? You need to accept Christ Do you need to come and, as a believer, just pray? Glory in the grace that you have this morning. Would you like Tom or me to pray with you or somebody else? This is our time to respond. What God has told you through this message this morning. Let's stand, let's sing, and let's do business with him today.